Hey team, this is the Innovation Inc. podcast, and I'm your host, Liz Brown Evans. We sit down with our favorite entrepreneurs and nerd out on anything that involves innovation in the corporate space. So if you work for a corporate company, but you think like an entrepreneur, we're your people, and we're really excited you're here. Before we jump in, a huge thank you to our sponsor and Inc. 5000 company, APAC Software. They create powerful custom software, websites, and mobile apps that take your business's innovative ideas and turn them into realities. Reach out today to get a quote at apacsoftware.com. All right, everyone, let's get to it. Welcome back, guys. It is Liz Brown Evans of the Innovation Inc. podcast. I am thoroughly excited today for our guest. Uh, It's our second guest in our favorite industry. I apologize to all the other industries we've interviewed, but it's hard to compete with bourbon. So today we have the absolute pleasure of interviewing Jane from Maker's Mark, uh, officially the director of innovation, but her more fun title, which we're really going to lean into today is master of maturation, which I feel like is one of those things that you truly can't say five times fast. So Jane, uh, why don't you (laughs) tell us a little bit about yourself? Um, Maybe a little bit of where you came from, how you ended up at Makers, and then we'll we'll chat about innovation. Yeah. Hey, uh, Liz. Good morning. Thanks for having me. My name is Jane Bowie, originally Jane Connor for any Lexington listeners. I am a transy grad, born <laughs> and raised uh, in South Central Kentucky, Lake Cumberland area. And I have been in the bourbon industry almost 15 years. I, I started with Makers Mark. Um, in early 2007 as the first international employee and spent my time trotting around the globe, introducing the world to bourbon, you know, literally one drink at a time. And, you know, 14 (laughs) and a half years later, now run all the innovation, oversee all of our maturation processes um, here at the distillery in Loretto, Kentucky. Um, I'm married to a crazy, wonderful guy and have a four-year-old daughter who is very spirited uh, is probably the best. She has really strong leadership skills. And um, I live in Bardstown, Kentucky. So I love all things sports, all things travel, all things alcohol. So that's me. I love it. I love it. Um, Man, I think that's how my mom introduced me when I was little as well. So I appreciate your positive (laughs) outlook on, on your daughter's personality. So I, uh, I'm really excited to kind of dig in a little deeper into an actual distillery here in the state. Um, I think obviously we all makers mark is such a powerful brand and one that is so well known. Um, so there's a million things we could talk about, but let's just start maybe with a broad overview of what, what does innovation look like at makers? You've kind of mentioned you guys have a, a specific innovation philosophy. Why don't you unpack that for us a little bit? Yeah. So, I mean, innovation, honestly, is still a four letter word to most people that work at the Maker's Mark Distillery. You got to imagine we're (laughs) located in a town of four or five hundred people. The town pretty much is the distillery. And these are multi-generational employees that um, have this is where they've lived and worked and grown up. And so we did one thing really well for over 50 years. And it's funny because we're a brand that when you look back at the 50s, um, it was a very innovative concept product for this industry. It was far more expensive than anything that was sitting on the market at the time. The family had kind of done things their own way, even though they were really grounded in the bourbon industry. They scrapped the old and started anew. So even though this brand was created in a very pioneering spirit, it's it stuck to one thing for so long. And so 
innovation's really only been a part of the brand's DNA and vocabulary uh, for the last decade, probably, and really only the last five years. I think innovation is such a buzzword these days. Um, so it is a very different philosophy. I think in our industry, there's a couple of ways to innovate. Um, and there's probably more, but I think there's two real schools of thought. Um, there's let's try stuff and see what happens and maybe we'll come up with something which I'm not allowed to do. Or there's let's define what winning looks like and let's build a roadmap to get to that point. Um, and so actually my number one job description actually written down is I'm not allowed to throw shit against the wall. So, <laughs> which is probably good for someone like me because I think there's a lot of experimenting you could do in our industry, but if you don't have a goal or a perceived outcome, um, you get mission creep very, very quickly. So we do a little bit of tinkering and I think we we don't always end up with the answer where we expect going in. I think you have to have an open mind, but we usually for each project, we define what winning looks like. Um, we defined what losing could look like, right? There's also risk hmm. and reward with innovation. And I think um, just because you can do something doesn't mean you should. And so for a brand that has so much heritage and such a passionate following uh, from our consumer perspective. A lot of my job is equal parts pushing the envelope, but being the ultimate guardian of the brand as well. So it's, it's really a, a balancing those two things when you look at a brand like Maker's Mark. I love that you bring up your customers because I imagine you guys have customers with very strong <laughs> opinions, which, which is what you want, right? That means you have strong brand identity, um, you're close to the customer base. But I think in the bourbon industry, especially what I'm absolutely fascinated by is that balance because there's such a, a time lag between something you try now versus when it can hit the market. I guess the exception may be packaging. I don't know, but you can't pack it. Anyway, I'm, I, I really love that you even mentioned your customers, um, because, yeah, I imagine it's a bit of a give and take of listening to their feedback, but also not following every trend that they mention or, or want you to follow. And that is exactly you nailed it. And it's funny. I, I wish you could come work in our marketing department. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, it, it is it's the balance of what are people asking more and what's on trend. But we're not an industry that plans in quarters or years. We plan in decades and centuries. So when you think about what we're making today is oftentimes not going to see the light of day for 10 years. You know, a pro when you start a project, you <sighs> taking a pulse on what's happening right now isn't always as relevant, you know, for our industry as others. So it is a balancing act of, okay, what are, what's trending? Where do we think this is going? But we also have to live with ourselves at the end of the day. Like I still have to look myself in the mirror and say, hey, this was the right decision for the brand. And so there's a lot of um, talking to yourselves a little bit on purpose, right? Like you, do, you, that can be bad sometimes, but it also, you have to do things that truly make sense for this brand alone. Because if you're just doing what the distillery down the road's doing or what is suddenly, um, you know, really making a splash, by the time you're up and running in, in an industry like us, it might not even be relevant. And then you just look really late to the game and a little bit tone deaf. So <laughs> honestly, I think um, it, it is. It's taking in all the inputs and then saying what well, we got to do, what's right for us. And we actually, um, when we really started thinking about innovation, one of the, the smartest things Rob Samuels did 
who he's our third generation. Uh, Samuel's in charge of makers. You know, he's an eighth generation bourbon maker here in Kentucky. And he inherited this brand from his dad. We're not family owned, but we're family operated, um, which is really wonderful. You kind of get the best of both worlds. But when we started talking about innovating in a more consistent and big way, um, the first thing he did is we sat down with a small team and we created guardrails. Um, and I think people think about white space being totally, that's such a buzzword right now. Like, let's go play in the white space. Okay, what does that mean? So I think too much though is sometimes crippling. Having guardrails and understanding intuitively and instinctively and being aligned as an organization on what's inbounds and what's out of bounds is one of the smartest things we ever did. It actually allows me to move faster and more creatively when I truly understand what makes sense. So we spent months establishing guardrails for the brand and how we would innovate and things that were, were inbounds and things that were out of bounds. And it was so funny. The first year he would make us actually read these out loud as we would sit down every meeting. Like, <laughs> um, until we all knew them by heart, but it was, it was good work and we revisit them, right? What made sense 10 years ago, maybe doesn't make sense today, or there's natural evolution and innovation uh, that, you know, something starts one way and it, you're going to naturally learn and evolve and change your mind. I love this industry. I constantly am learning things and I change my mind a lot and it's allowed, which is great. Um, I mean, you only feel like an asshole sometimes, but it's, <laughs> yeah, those guardrails and really um, establishing some rules. And I use that term loosely around how we would innovate was it made, it makes my job much, much easier, actually. Sure. I've probably given this analogy on the podcast before. Um, so sorry to our listeners if I have, but Mike Hilton, my partner here at Innovation Inc., he loves giving the analogy that if you take someone uh, to the ocean and you say like, hey, go swim, it's a little bit overwhelming to look at the entire ocean and know like where to start or where you're going. Um, and so rather thinking of innovation sort of like a pool, um, now what you shouldn't do is like put in all the lanes and all the lines and tell, Hey, you swim that direction, you swim this direction and you need to do it at these times of day. But if you at least put it in, put people in a pool, it's sort of a confined area that you can like wrap your mind around rather than the Pacific. Um, and I, I feel like that's what you're getting out of. You don't want to have too many like rules and regulations because then it stops being innovation and it's basically just project management but you don't want to send someone with, with absolutely no guardrail. So I love the the kind of guardrail term that you're putting to that. Um, w along those lines, so you guys, you are basically, it sounds like building kind of this department, your job, your role. Um, why did you guys decide to, to start this department or put someone in your role? <laughs> um, hey, I love the analogy, so I'm going to start using that. But um, we didn't. It was my side hustle forever. The thing about this company, uh, Maker's Mark, is I laugh and tease Rob and Bill all the time. They still think we're eight people in a loft most of the time. Um, and we're we're a big brand, right? And I was here when we weren't that big of a brand. And it's been interesting to see how a brand like this goes through a little bit of an identity crisis as you start to grow and really like, okay, we're big. Do you act big? And it's like, no, you can still be you, but you need to... To, to probably start thinking a little bit bigger. So the truth is they, there was no conscious decision to start this department. Innovation was my side hustle for years. Um, and it was myself and really Rob, you know, 
kind of brainstorming it. And I, and he would say, do you want to go run with this? And I'd say, yeah, I'm going to go run with this. And then finally I realized I had a full-time job working at Maker's Mark and this was the side thing. And there came a day where it was just, this can't be a side thing anymore. There's too much. It's too important and it's too big. And so it really, there wasn't a decision to start the department. It was more just, we have to, if we're going to continue on. And so we set up um, the part, the department about 18 months ago. Uh, we have a teeny tiny building. Um, we're hoping to get into actual space. I mean, it's, I'm surrounded by about 2000 bottles of whiskey and this is not even the you know, tip of the iceberg. That sounds so I hard. Made, that sounds like such it, a depressing work environment. <laughs> it really is. Now I have the greatest job in the world, uh, for sure. But we, I brought in someone, I don't have a science background. Um, I, I wish I did every day I wake up and I feel like it's that nightmare where you, you know, you're at your AP chemistry test, but you didn't know you signed up for AP chemistry. Um, <laughs> that's what every day feels like for me for the most part, which is really fun because I learn a lot as far as, uh, I mean, it really is a ton of chemistry. So I have a, um, a colleague, a, a gal that works for me that who came from quality control and she has a bio and chemistry background. She's highly technical. She's trained on all the lab equipment. Um, so we're kind of a yin and yang. So the two of us make up the department. I also uh, work with people on the marketing side, the commercial side, who are doing the packaging and working with agencies on creative and the storytelling and how we're going to do that. Um, and then we have, you know, it's very cross-functional. You work with the distillery team. You work with the warehouse team. Obviously, I work with Denny Potter, our master distiller, very closely. So we touch a lot of different parts of the business. And it's fun to sit in a room and dream something up make the actual whiskey, watch it go in a bottle, and then also get to work on how it goes to market and how people are engaging with it. So yeah, it's been all out. I'm still adjusting to this being the full-time job. It's such a different world than where I came from. So I love that I am, uh, I, I just think it's so cool that you get to touch so many pieces of what you guys do. Um, I, as someone who's like marginally, aware of like what it takes to make bourbon in our prep call. I took furious notes. I'm going to list the things you mentioned. Cause I just thought it was so cool that you like the full circle of you deal with the grains growing on the property, liquid from a taster flavor standpoint, pressure testing, blending the liquid formation, like it, everything you guys have to touch everything. And, and I think what I like about that is your view of innovation is not just about like some cooler, sexy marketing ploy. It's, it's, everything of the process of bourbon. Um, and you guys, it sounds like it's just in the DNA of how you guys understand growth and creativity. It's, I'm lucky how holistic it is. And that's most brands probably aren't like that. In fact, I know they're not because, um, you know, we have sister distilleries that work very differently. It's, we're very lucky here because it is a very holistic vision. And I think part, a lot of that's still being family operated, um, and then coming, you know, I started my career in sales and marketing. So coming from that side and then also working in operations, I, I it's fun getting to see it come full circle. So I, I feel lucky. Um, and I work with really smart people every day that are really experts. I feel like I have a lot of uh, breath. And I mean, I definitely dive in the whiskey, like the blending and the liquid itself is probably my strongest passion and my best expertise. 
but I'm lucky I, I, I get to hear the marketer side and then I get to hear, you know, the people who are going to go bottle this go, this guy's insane. Like he doesn't, you know, they don't understand what it takes to put a strip stamp on a hundred thousand bucks. Like, you know, you're constantly like the in between going, okay, I see both points of view. So how do we make, there's a lot of compromising, um, when it comes to what a marketing marketer dreams up in a room versus the reality of how you can bring that product to life. And then even how a salesperson can actually sell it. So it's, it's fun. It's, um, it's fun seeing like all the different perspectives and where things net out. So absolutely. One other thing to kind of maybe close out on this general topic that you said to us before, as we were chatting was that all your innovation is meant to reinforce the brand, not find the next maker's mark. And I think what's interesting about that is, um, we talk with so many companies about the difference between incremental improvement and breakout ideas. So you can incrementally improve something forever. You know, that's what Toyota is like famous for. Um, but breakout ideas are kind of typically like a new line of business or a new way of doing something. And I feel like you guys are almost redefining what breakout means because what you're not doing, it sounds like you're not just doing incremental improvement, but I'm just, inter- but you're, but you're not trying to go make a new like seltzer water made with bourbon or something, you know? So how, like, how do you guys define maybe I, if you have anything else to say, I feel like maybe, maybe not, but is there anything else that you guys use as kind of your North star for like, what is the goal of innovation? I think for us makers is, is the bread and butter. I mean, it's, it's our flagship. It's, you know, and, and because it's whiskey production, to your point earlier, it's not quick whiskey. It's not quick. And, and brands that are beloved and global and iconic aren't built overnight. Like, you know, it takes such a magical formula. I think of a good, a good product with the right package and the right team behind it and the right story. And then just a lot of discipline, Mm -hmm. right? Like you, it's, it's not exactly interesting to tell the same story over and over every day for decades. And that's really kind of what we've done here. It (laughs) takes a ton of discipline. It's real easy to go make new shiny things all the time, but it's exhausting. So I think for us, it's a couple of things. Um, We've not traditionally done a ton of what I would call line extensions. Um, You know, we've got three different proofs of Maker's Mark with Classic, the 101 and Cask. And each one has a different role. Each one has a different occasion. And that's as much of, I guess, as a traditional line extension. But all those products have a real reason to live. And then when you look at Makers 46 and our barrel program and our wood finishing series, to me, those are truly innovative products. Like that was us doing something that no one had done before in the industry. People didn't understand it. Your purists didn't like it. it 46, the the only reason that product still exists is because the whiskey is so damn good. The name is stupid. The using French oak and how we do it and the stave process and the finishing, like it was just hadn't been done before and people didn't understand it. And honestly, they didn't want to. And it's taken a decade of, of really reiterating kind of how we do it to your bourbon lovers for them to finally go, okay, I get it. Like, And it makes sense. And ultimately it tastes good, which is why it's still here. But I would say when we launched that product in 2010, the bourbon community was not ready for it. I mean, it was, you you would not believe the resistance, like people just didn't get it. And so 
to me though, that's, if you're not pissing people off, you're probably not trying hard enough, right? Like doing things that are fine or meant, like I would rather do something that really angers people or has them passionate one way or another. And so I think for us at the end of the day, we can only make so much whiskey in a year and Maker's Mark is always going to be the priority. Right now, everything we make comes out of that one whiskey. It's just, as my mom would say, each whiskey is wearing a different costume, right? So it's it's different expressions of the same whiskey, but everything comes back to Maker's Mark and everything we do really falls out of the DNA of Maker's Mark. So it's, you know, if we could build seven new sets of stills and and a hundred new warehouses, maybe then we go try to make the next maker's mark or the next something else. But the truth is, you know, growth is slow in our industry and you're what we're laying down today won't be sold for six to seven years. So it's, it's, you know, and your inventory is evaporating. Like there's a lot of things about our industry (laughs) that are weird if you think about it. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think, Our goal is to build Maker's Mark and find new and delicious whiskeys to keep telling that story in new and different ways to consumers. I mean, that's ultimately what my job is. Right. Yeah. I mean, I love that you just gave an example of what you were talking about at the beginning, that you guys have to ultimately at the end of the day be able to go go to sleep at night, like look yourself in the eye and sleep with that. And it sounds like that's what you did with 46 and just waited until people got it, um, which is... Yeah, I mean that's that takes a lot of bravery as a brand. So I'm I'm definitely impressed by that. Um and I think I think the bourbon industry in general, why I love talking to anyone in the bourbon industry about innovation is you guys are the people at the dinner table that if anyone else is complaining about how hard innovation is, you guys always have like the flex of like, yeah, try having a product that won't be done for seven years and is actively evaporating and then come back to me when you actually get how hard that is. So it, uh, it's just wild to me. So, um, I wanted to dig in a little bit. How, how do ideas kind of bubble up on your team? What does it look like to get feedback? Um, what is kind of infrastructure around innovation or, um, you know, yeah, feedback loop look like, uh, within makers team? Um, we, it really is, Um, you know, we take input from commercial and marketing on stuff, but it it doesn't start there. All the liquid and the ideas, and it really does come from the distillery team. So our core innovation team is myself, Beth Buckner, who I mentioned is, um, innovation manager from a more technical side, Denny Potter, our master distiller, and then Rob Samuels, who, um, is obviously our chief whiskey officer. I don't even know what his title is, honestly. Um, (laughs) He runs, he runs the whole thing. So the four of us, um, are kind of the core team. And we talk about, you know, where we want to go and, and flavor levers we want to pull. I think that's really how I think about my job is I spend half my time under trying to understand where flavor comes from, whether it's agriculture or processes. And then once you understand the levers, then you can go pull to dream up new whiskeys. So we're really building the blueprint for whoever comes after me and who comes after them, right? Like this department will be singing in 20 to 30 years. We're building the blue. We're doing kind of the dirty work, I feel like. And it's fun and I love it and I wouldn't have it any other way. But we're really diving into single variables to understand. So as we um, learn what's possible, it really inspires like, 
okay, we could make a whiskey that does X, Y, Z. How does that fit in the portfolio? Who would drink this? What's the story we tell? And then it's working on, you know, what's the right volume? How do you go to market with it? How do we give? This is the thing too. Um, the marketers are going to push the creativity and how it's going to go, but a salesperson has to go sell it. So I think one of the big learnings with 46, because we screwed it up in a lot of different ways, we were too precious about the store, like making sure people understood technically how it was made. People don't give a shit. That's there if they want to peel back the onion and go dive deeper. But the average consumer only cares about how much does it cost? Does it taste good? And as a brand, does it say something about me as a person? And I think that that whole product, we learned a lot about not being too precious on your own stuff. So as a team, it's really balancing all these things together. And I would say a lot of times experimentation, you know, I would say 95% of the things we experiment on end up on the editing floor. So one of our things is like, is, is this product worthy of makers? Like we think makers mark is the greatest brand, the greatest bourbon. Like that is a belief that is entrenched in all of us. So when we innovate, it's, is this product worthy of being in this Maker's Mark portfolio? So there's a little, I don't know if I answered your question, but there's a little bit of taking inputs, but there's a core four of us that really set the direction and where we're going to go and the stories we're going to tell and how those liquids are going to show up and then how those liquids sit together, right? You don't want a bunch of whiskeys that do the same thing. So they need to complement one another, but be different enough to have their own reason to exist. Use the word occasion earlier. This is kind of a side question. In my mind, that's such an elegant way of talking about bourbon, like how someone's going to use it in a different occasion. Is that how you're using that word? <laughs> it is. We think a lot about the occasion, right? Like when I'm out drinking at a bar and it's loud and noisy and crowded, that's a different drinking occasion than if I'm sitting at home having a nightcap. Or if I'm, um, you know, you're celebrating versus maybe you're commiserating. Like there's different occasions, different reasons. Um, and for me, whiskey can fill all those occasions. It's just the serve, the the actual whiskey itself. Like it's whiskey's usually a part of my everyday life. It's just going to change depending on the occasion and what we're doing. Right. Tailgating. I don't often drink early times out of a flask, but when I'm at a football <laughs> game, that makes total sense to me. Right. 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 Yeah. On the Hill. I don't know that I'm, <laughs> that, that's my go-to. So, um, one other thing I want to ask about, I know you had mentioned earlier, you have this sort of team of, of brand ambassadors. Um, what a, do you want to kind of revisit that or what, what that team looks like and what their function is? Yeah. So this brand was built, I mean, Bill Jr., you know, you've got the founders, Margie and Bill Samuels, their son joined the business. And most people, when they think of makers in Kentucky, they, they often think of Bill Samuels Jr. Um, he was the guardian of makers and for 40 years and really, when you look at the early success and how the brand was established and built and its personality, it was all him. He did all of that. And so when he started, his dad didn't believe in traditional marketing. In fact, he, he didn't like marketers or agency people at all. He didn't believe in advertising. So when Bill Jr. joined the business, um, his job was to find customers, but his dad had all these rules. And so 
what he would do is he would go to bars and restaurants in Lexington and Louisville and he would buy people drinks as they came up to the bar. And you, it's hard to imagine, but even Kentuckians didn't drink a lot of bourbon necessarily back then. And, you know, we had some really key first customers. Keeneland was our very first customer. Um, and so he built the brand one drink at a time, one person. And his dad had this philosophy that if they if people like it, they'll tell their friends. Right. If they like it, they'll tell their friends. And that's how we'll. But his dad also, this was a hobby. Right. Um, this distillery, he made a bourbon very geared to his own palate. And his whole ambition was, um, you know, maybe some of the best restaurants in Lexington, Louisville will carry it. And my friends will like to drink it at my house. I mean, what a great business plan. So, <laughs> um, yeah. So that was how the brand was built was Bill Jr., doing, you know, this really grassroots marketing. And it was a core part of the brand's DNA, humans talking to humans, right? And so we have kept that. That was my first job. I was our global brand ambassador. And so even at the size we are now, we have a huge, you know, not huge. We have a small army of individual men and women that that is their job is still very much grassroots in the community, making the brand a part of different communities. And it's not just working with bars and restaurants. It's touching consumers. It's really owning the brand when you live in a place. I, I got to do it in London um, and I worked. It's interesting. I started as our global ambassador. Then I went to our European and then I was uh, the UK, which seems like I kept getting demoted, but it wasn't. The idea was let's go deep versus wide and let's really be a part of the community and 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 let the brand um, touch a lot of different you know, people, not just bartenders, not just liquor store owners, not just consumers, but everybody. So yeah, I, um, before I came to full-time innovation, I was building this team globally. I think we've got about 40 people on the team now. I do not manage, um, them anymore. We have someone much better qualified to do that job, but, um, yeah, they're an, they're an incredible team and they really input, um, innovation from the outside in. So I have, uh, we put them into smaller little task force, I guess. Um, so once a month, I have a call with a group of five of them where we just hear what's going on in the market. Because I'm in Loretto, Kentucky. What do I know about what's happening in Singapore or Tokyo or right? I don't know anything. So um, they're inputting and we actually hear from them a lot about trends they're seeing, what's happening, how things what what's resonating and it's not just products it can be cocktail trends it can be um you know marketing things it can be you know you mentioned seltzer right like is that actually a thing or people is it already dying like they have their hand on the pulse much better than we do down here so they're an incredible team and you you beat me to the punch but it sounds like they are such an incredible asset you guys are you know, you said a limited to Kentucky and a big, powerful brand. And I think it's so easy to get further and further away from the customer almost as you get caught up in maintaining a company. But it sounds like you guys are very much keeping your pulse through this team on what both individuals want, what the market wants and sort of a, a constant feedback direct from the customer, which which is so essential to to knowing what's next. So, um, yeah, that sounds like such such an incredible asset. And honestly, anytime you need an ambassador to the U.K., 
you know how my number. So let me know. Um, <laughs> Singapore. I don't, I don't really that. care. <laughs> I will, I will have you to travel anywhere. Just don't tell my husband. Um, so a little bit of a different question, um, but still in this realm, what would you say is y'all's disposition toward, toward risk? I know that's kind of a broad question, but risk is something that sort of goes hand in hand often with growth, creativity, and innovation. And it's also something that becomes much, a much bigger uh, focus as you get big, right? When you're small and you're an underdog and you're scrappy, risk doesn't feel. And we were always a brand that took risk. I think it's been interesting. Um, I can't speak in totality for the brand, um, but I would say, you know, traditionally, we were a brand that took risk. I think we got to a certain size and probably were a, not afraid to try new things, but we've been doing this one thing for so long. Like, why would we do anything else? What if it was the wrong move? And then I'll tell you for me, a big moment for the brand. And I don't know, Rob and Bill probably feel differently because they probably have PTSD from it. But, um, was when we lowered the proof. I don't know if you remember that. Um, in 2013, we added an ounce of water to every bottle of Maker's Mark because supply was so constrained and shelves were sitting empty for weeks and months at a time. And we weren't going to cut the age. We weren't going, we've never sourced whiskey a day in our lives. Every bottle of Maker's Mark that whiskey was made here, everything made here has gone into a bottle of Maker's Mark. We have never bought or sold whiskey in our 67 years. Wow. It's probably the number one thing I'm most proud of as, as a brand. Nothing wrong with it. I love what it's done for the craft industry and what's happening, but we are a single source of supply. And so we made that decision and we bottled and shipped that product for approximately six days and the world lost their mind. And I'm not just saying they kind of, people were kind of upset. You talked about that consumer. I remember us sitting in a room before we sent the email to our ambassadors and saying, gosh, what if nobody cares? Like that would be worse. Boy, did they care and boy, did they let us know, but they also forgave us. Like we screwed up. It was a, it was, it was a bad move on our part. And, but it also to me was a really important business lesson that if you're transparent and you're sincere and you make a mistake, people will forgive you. And so I think that to me was like, oh, you can do some things you can write. Like that wasn't, Adding that ounce of water didn't feel risky at the time. And hindsight, it, it really was. And it was, you know, it, it made us realize like this is a brand that the consumers really have a lot of ownership of. So I think we have, I think we are not afraid to make mistakes. I think our biggest thing is being really protective of the Maker's Mark brand and doing things that are worthy of that brand. So it's a, it's a good balance. Um, I don't know if that was, I don't no, know if that's, that answered your question. That's great. But. And I also think in, in the age of, um, I think transparency or vulnerability, both from individuals and, and brands is, is almost a little overdone at the moment. And I think it's really important what you said. It's, it's transparency, but it's also sincerity. Like even the way you're talking about it now is like owning, like owning a mistake rather than being like, and then we sent this press release to like make everyone happy and sort of apologize. <laughs> you know, you guys actually meant it and you actually listen to customers and you actually are thankful that they were mad because you know what that means, which is that they care. Um, and I think that's super important. Uh, the other thing too, that I'm keeping in mind that you sort of help me understand is that your customer isn't just the consumer. It's not just me. It's 
the distributor, it's the bar and the industry. And then, I mean, you guys have a lot of people to make happy. Yeah, there's a lot of layers in the way alcohol is distributed in the United States of America. Um, But no, yeah, our distributor partners obviously are the first port of call. And then from there, it goes to the trade, which are bars, restaurants or liquor stores. And then the consumers kind of the end user. So we do. We have a lot of and then even your own internal sales team. Right. Um, It's you know, there's there's a lot of people that touch this brand and. There's a lot of people that care about this brand. It's definitely, you know, I think people are pretty passionate about whiskey in general. Um, There's something about it. I I always think it's the maturation, obviously, because that's my job. But uh, I think the folklore, the history, the heritage, the fact that it does take so many years, there's something about it that feels more emotive than a bottle of vodka. You know, it just, there's something about whiskey. And this brand in particular, it gets into people's skin. So it's, um, sometimes it drives you crazy, but most, I think most of the times we're appreciative of it. And I'll tell you, the pandemics made us very appreciative because we, you know, we haven't had the same tourism down here. We typically get 150,000 visitors a year to our distillery wow. and we didn't have that. And it, we've really missed the energy of people being around. And, um, so yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, as we kind of round the corner, um, I, last question I want to ask about is, um, You've mentioned in our conversations about this sort of entrepreneurial spirit that's within the DNA of, of makers. So maybe finish out by telling us a little bit about that heritage or that culture with, within the team and within the brand. That's really a Samuels thing. Um, Bill and Rob are entrepreneurs, the soul of who they are. Um, and they like to hire entrepreneurs. Their whole thing is like, let's do, I don't pay you to agree with me. I pay you to actively challenge the world around you. So they hire people who are really experts at at what they do and, and they let them go do it. Um, and so that has been, honestly, you know, we don't have a ton of turnover. Like this is the only real job I've ever had. It's the only, I started with them when I was 25 years old and there's a reason like it, it suits me. It suits my personality because I'm allowed to go. Um, and that's his number one thing. Bill always, um, says like indecisive is the worst thing you can be like, just do something. Even if you screw up, just go. So there's really a sense of letting people own their own business, letting people really, um, make decisions and have ownership and freedom, but then you have accountability, right? So if I screw up, it's on me. Um, and you're allowed to make mistakes. You just don't make them twice. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's definitely, um, it's a little bit of anarchy sometimes. Like we're a very flat organization. <laughs> uh, like someone brought up succession planning the other day and everybody's like, huh? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. Uh, you know, like we, we don't have a lot of layers. There's not a lot of hierarchy here. So it is, it, there's, there's, there's good and bad with all things, I think. So, but absolutely. Um, yeah, it's great. It's a wonderful place to work. Sounds like you, uh, I love hearing how much you adore your job. It's, it's obviously very evident and not just your job, but the brand you work for and your belief in that. Um, we, last thing I'll say, we work pretty closely with, um, gray ink or gray construction as people often know it here in Lexington. Um, and one of the things that the gray family and Stephen Gray is passionate about is building in a, a founder's mentality into their team. Um, and I think that's what you're describing of everyone feeling in part like they are founder, which is hard as you grow, it's probably, you know, that's what makes 
innovation hard for a big company versus a startup where you've got, you know, a couple people um, getting it off the ground. So I, it just sounds like you guys are very much um, just towing that line well. And, you know, it sounds like hats off to the Samuels family for for really making that a priority. So um, it's funny. It's funny you say that because I would say the thing, the question Rob asked me the most, like I'm not kidding, is he'll say, if you own the brand, what would you do? I love it. <laughs> and it is, it is, but it's a really great question because you, you work harder, you're more thoughtful. It's, but he, that is, we like all meetings, if you own the brand, what would you do? And it actually makes your decision-making a lot easier. If you, if you put that hat on and you think about it from that perspective. Right. I know, uh, so, I know all tech, uh, has always put a big like that's always our question as well. Like if you owned it, what would your choice be? So it um, doesn't surprise me knowing how Pierce lines. Exactly. Was, right? Like, yeah, that makes total sense. I mean, that's one of the biggest legacies I know that they speak on even that he wanted to leave behind was, was that question. So, well, Jane, I really can't thank you enough. This has been an absolute pleasure. Um, I'm very excited for people to hear about this, not just because obviously innovation in bourbon is a specific thing, but I think the lessons you guys have learned, the principles you guys hold to apply to pretty much any, any industry. So thank you so much for your time. Um, any last words on what, uh, how you want listeners to get involved other than, you know, the hard job of just going out and buying your bourbon? Yeah, I would say just, um, what I love about the bourbon industry, it's so rooted in Kentucky and agriculture, right? And you think about Kentucky as a state, it, we're an agricultural state. So, you know, I would encourage your listeners to go visit your local distillery. It doesn't have to be us, but like, just see what the state's all about and see what our industry is all about because it's pretty remarkable um, and how it's it's so intertwined with Kentucky. So amen to that. On that note, Jane, thanks so much. And we will talk to you soon. Thanks, Liz. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. If you know someone who should be on our show, even if it's you, reach out to us at innovationincubated.com. And while you're on our website, sign up for our newsletter. Lastly, thanks to our sponsor, Apex Software. The right software partner can change everything. So reach out today at apexsoftware.com. Until next time, go team.